Hey, it's Elahe. We have a special episode today from one of our producers. I want to let you know that it deals with sensitive topics, including substance use disorder and fatal overdoses. Some details could be difficult to hear. Okay, here's the show. So tell me about Mingo. Like, who is Mingo to you? Who is Mingo to the school? And who is Mingo to his set of friends, if you remember? That's a good question. So from what I remember, I had my very first class with Mingo. I was 15 years old, and it was Honors English 2. And he sat right beside me. He was pretty laid back. I would say very, not necessarily reserved, but he wasn't the type of person who needed to say something just to say something. I do remember in a teacher-sanctioned rap battle, he dropped some real serious bars. And I remember, because I will never forget, I'm hot, you're not a smoke pot. And, like, I remember the entire classroom, like, erupted. They were like, oh, my, he said that in front of the teacher. And this kid, like, stood up and went, it's over. It's over. And and the the rap battle was over because Mango had the audacity to tell everyone what we already knew. (laughs) At my high school in Greenville, North Carolina, almost everyone seemed to know Mango or Domingo Rodriguez Quay. And to me, even his name sounded cool. My friends, Lee Hoff and Alex Cias, who you just heard, they knew him a little bit better than I did. What I can remember of Mingo is that he was always wearing these t-shirts from bands like Led Zeppelin and the Ramones. He had this swagger about him too as he went down the halls of Jatro's high school. His black, shaggy hair would kind of hang in his eyes. And to be honest, I don't think I ever saw him with a backpack. Mingo always stood out to me because he just seemed like a good guy. He was a popular kid, but at least from what I could tell, he just was nice to everybody. How did you find out that Mingo had died? I think it might have been Lee, actually. I don't remember exactly how. I don't remember exactly when I found out that he had died. I remember how I felt. I remember that. I remember by that point, I guessed overdose. But it still was, like, shocking. And it's interesting to think, you know, as I'm just kind of talking about it, how it's less and less shocking as time goes by. Mingo overdosed on fentanyl on October 18th, 2017. He was 22 years old, and like Alexius, I don't remember how I found out about his death, but I remember what I felt. I was also shocked and really sad. Right around Mingo's death is when I started noticing something. So many others around my age, in my hometown, had also died this way. A lot of them knew each other, and since then... I've kept hearing about more. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Jordan Marie Smith. It's Friday, December 2nd. Today, after a string of drug deaths in my hometown, I look at the ripple effects of trauma and what it tells us about a drug epidemic that's only gotten worse. 
My mom and I moved to Greenville, North Carolina when I was in fourth grade. I lived there until I left for college in 2011. Greenville is about an hour and a half southeast of Raleigh. There's a big medical center there and East Carolina University. To me, it feels like a classically Southern place. I mean, in middle school, I'd hear the well-off kids talk about cotillion season. I did not go to cotillion, but I had a great group of friends. And we would hang out at the local Barnes & Noble or a cafe called Tipsy Teapot. After I left, every time I would go back to visit, I'd meet up with some friends at a bar. And somebody would mention someone from town who had died from drugs, usually an opioid overdose. The thing is, I knew some of the names, like Mingo's. There was another guy who I had chemistry class with, and then his brother, and then one of their friends, and then another. I've seen many opioid clusters around the United States um, where a, a batch of drugs will come in and a number of people, usually people who are using it together or people who the same dealer sold it to, will overdose. I had never seen a group of friends this large become addicted and die over eight or nine years. Uh, To me, that was a story that we, the Post, had had not covered before. And then you knowing them was another unique element of this. This is Lenny Bernstein. He's a health and medicine reporter for the Post, and he's been covering the opioid epidemic for years. He joined me to look into this. When I started making calls to people in Greenville, pretty quickly I ended up with a list of 16 names of young people who had died from drug overdoses in less than a decade. Many of them were connected in some way. They were mostly young men and mostly white. It's important to say that this is just a fraction of the drug-related deaths in the area in that period. But I was struck with how quickly that list of names grew from just a few calls and messages and how many circles overlapped between them. I called Lenny because I was trying to figure out how common this was and if my hometown could tell us anything about the opioid epidemic. Opioid and other drug overdose deaths are at their highest point ever. The last figure we got was 107,000 people died in a year from drug overdoses and, of course, more people overdose without passing away. Lenny and I first traveled to North Carolina in the spring. We wanted to talk to the friends and families of some of the guys who have died. Hi, Joe. How are you? Nice to see you again. See you oh, yeah, we're right? hugging. It's the South. Oh, yeah. It's that's the South, right. That's man. right. I'm Joe. That's Joe Hughes. I wanted to talk to him because he knew Mingo and a lot of the other guys we're talking about today. He coached their middle school basketball team, and he was their history teacher, too. And Joe told me that he always made a point to stay in touch with his students. I genuinely try to look at all these kids as my my kids, my babies, and they will always be my babies. And I have kids who laugh because I teach their kids now. And uh, uh, they they, they still tease me, am I still your baby? And yes, you are. Uh, And you are and you always will be. Um, So you lose part of yourself. Joe dug out some old yearbooks for us. Could you go through that yearbook and kind of point people out for me? Sure. And describe what you're seeing. So there's Alex. 
um, just, just, you know, amazing. This is uh, Michael right here, and he died. Um, I know it was drugs. I don't know. I don't know if I, I assume it was opioids, but I, I shouldn't assume that probably. As Joe was flipping through the yearbook pages, pointing to the boys he had taught or coached, he stopped on pictures of the basketball teams. Mingo, Stewart, Alex, Jackson. Uh, it, it truly was for, for three or four years. There. It, was, it was awful in Greenville. Um, there, were, there, were, there were kids dying all over the place. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and that's one thing. But when they're kids that you know and they're kids that you taught and the kids that you have a relationship with, uh, it's, it's, it's very haunting. It, uh, it's frightening. Lenny and I started to put together a timeline of what had happened in this community over the last decade. We looked up the names we were hearing about, we confirmed their ages, and when they died. One of the first was Jackson Laughinghouse. He died at age 18 in 2013. Then it was Mingo Rodriguez Quay. Again, he was 22 when he died in 2017. Then Alex Laughinghouse, he was the brother of Jackson. Uh, Alex died at age 24 in 2018. And then Stuart Fletcher died later that year. He was 24. Lenny and I drove from Greenville to Charlotte, along with video journalist Drea Cornejo, to meet Mingo's brother, Ricky Rodriguez Quay. His roommate answered the door. Hello. How are Hi, you guys? Good. I'm, guess, I'm guessing you guys are uh, here for Ricky. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By all means, I know... Uh... Ricky was living in a townhouse with a couple other guys from college, and the place looked pretty much like you might expect. He cleared a place for us to sit down, and then the dog and the cat came over and joined him, and we asked him about his brother. Tell me about Mingo. Who is Mingo? Mingo is my brother, my older brother. Um, like, honestly, like one of my male mentors and best friend rolled into one guy, whether it's music or sports, whatever it is, like I can tie everything about me really back to my experiences with my brother. How about when your brother got into drugs? Um, yeah, that's kind of a, <laughs> like my brother I started smoking, like uh, smoking weed with his friends and stuff and like uh, drinking, smoking cigs, like, when he was in middle school, like, eight, eighth grade, I want to say, I remember one time when, when I was in fourth grade, I was sitting in the kitchen, probably doing homework or something, and my mom was making dinner, and he started smoking a cigarette in his room, which was right next to the kitchen. So I'm sitting in the kitchen, my mom's standing in the kitchen, and my brother is pretending he's not smoking a cigarette out, out his window, just like being stupid, you know, like acting like you wanted to be secretive, but it's like, did you really like probably kind of asking for attention and not the good kind? Something interesting about living in Greenville in general, you have the easy means to experience and like see a lot more than a normal high school kid would or a normal middle school kid would. Whatever you want, good or bad, can be like at your fingertips in that way. There never seems to be a simple answer for what leads to substance use disorder. But for those who have seen a loved one suffer, 
it can be hard not to ask why. To keep sorting through the past for clues, Ricky wonders if it all goes back to when they were really young. I think my brother always wanted that, like, attention and approval from my dad that he was never able to get. And I think that was, like, a constant source of, like, I need to get some sort of, you know, like, attention or whatever, even if it's not a good kind. And and I know, like, when my parents separated, my brother, like, blamed himself and his, like, actions when he was a kid as being, like, oh, like, I brought so much torment and like chaos to our family that it it tore my parents marriage apart and like that was like what he thought I don't think that's true we reached out to Ricky and Mingo's dad but haven't heard back but we did meet with their mom Maria Rodriguez Quay hello Hi, nice to meet you, Maria. Hi. Nice yeah. to meet you. Hey, I'm Lenny. Good to meet you. I barely made it to the airport because the person who was picking me up got stuck in traffic. Maria was in Charlotte for Ricky's graduation. Just the other day, I went to the doctor, and she asked me how many kids I have, and I said I have six children. And she asked me how old they were. And when I came to Mingo, I said um, he would be 27, but he passed away. She said, well, you have five kids then. And I said, no, I have six kids, five of whom are living. And so I did a little TikTok thing about it. And I said, you know, the day that I start telling people I have five kids is the day Mingo really does die. I was talking to a friend of mine last night about how they remember Mingo. Mm -hmm. And he told me the story, like, they were in class at Rose and a girl who's pregnant, Mm -hmm. she went away, she came back. And my friend was talking to her about like, hey, how you doing? What's what's going on? You're back. Right. And she was like, yeah, my child like died, stillbirth, oh my the whole thing. And Mingo just like turned around. Mm. He wasn't in the conversation, mm-hmm. but he like turned around and he just like expressed so much right. empathy mm-hmm. and sympathy. Mm-hmm. And... That's how he was. The day that he died, we had gone to breakfast. There was a, you know, one of the servers, one of the girls there. And she was on break when we were leaving. She was sitting in her car having a cigarette. And he's like, you know, she doesn't even know how how amazing she is. She doesn't even know how beautiful she is. You know, I'm just going to go over there and tell her. And he just went over there to she's sitting there having a cigarette. And he's like, look, I don't want your Instagram. I don't want your Snapchat. I just need to come over here and let you know that you're like absolutely beautiful. Like, and she just like smiled and he just went back to the car. And I'm like, you're crazy. (laughs) Shortly before Mingo died, Maria was staying with him day and night. She figured if she was around, he would be less likely to use heroin and that she could help him stop. The days leading up to when my brother passed, she spent basically like three days straight just like on the couch with him, like just like babysitting and talking to him, making sure he didn't do anything rash. Mingo had been in and out of rehab. He had been arrested for transporting large amounts of weed across state lines, and he was on probation. So hope is at an all-time low for my brother at this point. So after she babysat him for three straight days, Maria had to leave Mingo to go do some errands. And for the first time in, you know, a few days, he had to be at his place alone. Part of the reason he couldn't stay next to me was because his probation officer was going to come see his apartment. 
So um, he had to be in his apartment, and I had to be with the girls at the chiropractor and doing all this other stuff. Anyway, um, went home, had dinner with the other kids, and then I went to Walgreens to pick up a prescription that the psychiatrist had you know, called in for Mingo. So I went to Walgreens with Ricky because Ricky had to pick up a few things. And so we went to Walgreens, we picked up the meds. And I said, do you want to come with me, Ricky, to take him to Mingo? Or do you want me to drop you off at the house first? And he said, I'll go with you. So Ricky came with me to the apartment, which now, you know, I wish I would have left him at the house. But we didn't get on too well in our periods of life at that point. Like, obviously, I loved him and we still talked. And like, I felt bad because like, I hadn't really been there for my brother. You know what I mean? At this time. So me and my mom went to get him, get him Suboxone, like, uh, for, for his uh, withdrawals and, like, some cologne at the Walgreens. And then went over to his apartment. And there's a sticker on the door from the probation officer, which means... He didn't answer the door when the probation officer knocked at 5 o'clock. And so I'm banging on the door, and he doesn't answer. And I look through the crack in the blinds, and the keys are on the table. So I know he's in the apartment because his keys are on the table. He didn't have a car. I I had taken his car, so he didn't have a car. And um, So I knew he was in there, and we're knocking, knocking, knocking. We go around and try to knock on the back door because that's where his bedroom is. He doesn't answer. So we get the little hammer out of the car, you know, to break the glass. So I said, Ricky, let's just break the glass. I'm not going to sit here and, like, call maintenance and wait for a key. So we break the glass. We break in the back door, and, yeah, he's on the floor. And I I remember, I think I said out loud, what did you do, Mingle? What did you do? And I turned him over and he's blue. I asked Ricky to call 911. And when we started doing CPR, I said, Ricky, can you help me? He said, I don't know what to do. I said, just go outside then and make sure the ambulance knows where we are. Yeah. And when we got there, yeah, he was, uh, he was, yeah, he was dead. And that's like the tragic part when it comes to all the whole situation, all the stories is like, it could be anyone, you know, it could be anyone. It could be anyone. And for a while in Greenville, it felt like that. Joe Hughes, who taught and coached these kids in middle school, remembers going to their funerals. I've been to probably in the last 10 years, I've probably been to eight funerals uh, that had to do with overdose, uh, seven or eight uh, uh, funerals of kids who have, have done with overdose, and I've spoken at three of those funerals. Um, and, and speaking it, it, it's it's an honor to be asked to speak at a funeral. It, it is, and but it's the last thing I would ever want to do. Uh, I, I, I don't like doing it. I don't want to do it. But of course, if the family asks, you know, <laughs> they've just lost a child. So suck it up, buttercup, and, and deal with it um, and, and, and speak. In 2018, Joe spoke at a funeral for Alex Laughing House, who also went to high school with me and Mingo. I want to celebrate the life of Alex Laughing House. God blessed me, allowing me to know Alex for 20 of his 25 years. 
This is a recording of the eulogy Joe gave at Alex's funeral. He and my son attended kindergarten through eighth grades together, played football on the Panthers together, and most happily for me, were on the St. Peter's Green team together, a team which beat more public schools than any other St. Peter's team ever did. We went to see Fran Lunsford Laughing House, Alex's mom. She's the one who played this eulogy for us off a CD on a boombox in her bedroom. So I remember Fran showed us this photo that she keeps on her bureau of four of the guys on prom night. And one of them was her son, Alex. And I remember it's so striking because only one of the guys is still alive. Tell me about this picture that, that we're looking at. So this was at prom, I think it was Alex's senior year. Uh, and the um, friends got together for me to take a picture. And this is Nixon, and this is Richardson, and this is Cole, and this is Alex. Nixon was the first one to die of overdose, then Richardson, then Alex. Alex's death was tragic, like all of these deaths were. But there was another layer of tragedy here because the Laughing House family had been through this before. By the time Fran lost Alex, she had already lost another son to drugs. I went to high school with Alex and his brother Jackson. To me, they were both pretty popular. Alex always seemed like he had this, like, little posse around him. But we heard from people that we talked to that behind the scenes, there was a lot of struggle going on in his life. His dad, Bill, drank a lot. And Bill and Fran, their mom, separated when the boys were in middle school. Then Bill remarried, and he and his wife had a new baby in 2013. They named her Lacey. Jackson, in particular, was so excited about having a baby sister. He had always been the youngest. But then when she was just five weeks old, Lacey died. Here's Alex and Jackson's older sister, Ellie. You know, at the time, we thought that Lacey, you know, had just passed from um, SIDS or, um, you know, her mom said she found her face down. So we thought, well, maybe she rolled or suffocated or something like that. Jackson was really struggling with his baby sister's death. He got a tattoo the day Lacey died, with her name, birthday, and death date written on his chest. Then he went out with friends the night before Lacey's memorial service. I feel so guilty because the night before, I remember trying to help Jackson figure out what he was going to wear. And he wanted to wear it, like, all black. And I got into this big fight with him. I was like, Jackson, it's a funeral. It's not prom. Like, you don't need to wear, like, all black. And we got into this huge argument. And you would think, like, having literally being about to bury our sister, that I would be more, I don't know, maybe understanding and less prone to argue. But... I, maybe it was just that, you know, we were all tense and stressed, but that's literally the last thing that we talked about. The next morning, when Fran came to wake him up for the memorial service, he was unresponsive. Jackson had choked on his own vomit. A toxicology report would later show that he had four anti-anxiety medications in his system. So a friend helped Fran get Jackson to the front door while they waited for an ambulance to take him to the hospital. 
I don't really remember her memorial service because the whole time we were sitting there, you know, trying to talk about Lacey, um, you know, I was obviously very much worried about Jackson and trying to pretty much lie to my family about why he wasn't there. Um, you know, after her service, we did tell my dad. And then after that, we were all at my grandparents' house and I did share why Jackson truly wasn't there. So Lacey, Lacey passed away on a Wednesday. Her service was on a Friday, the following Wednesday. So exactly one week to the day, um, Jackson was taken off of life support and passed away that evening. A tiny infant and a teenager in one family, two kids gone in a matter of days. And then the Laughing Houses learned almost a year later that Lacey might not have died of SIDS after all. Turned out that her death may also have been drug-related. Her autopsy says there had been Xanax and Valium in her system. The family's story only gets more difficult because not long after the baby's death, her mother died of a drug overdose. And a few years later, Alex Laughinghouse died. Alex used to call me all the time. He used to say I was his hero. And I think that's, you know, losing Alex wrecked me. Like, it destroyed me in, in so many ways. And to be honest, if I wasn't, you know, carrying my daughter or, you know, didn't have my husband, like, I, I don't know that I would have made it through that. Alex overdosed in his dad's home after taking heroin, oxycodone, and cocaine, among other drugs. And just so you know, you're not hearing from Alex's dad because he died in 2020. Fran arrived on the scene as soon as she could get there. I mean, I got there. They were, you know, the law enforcement were still in and out of the house. They were all dressed in these, you know, disposable hazmat-type things because that was the way they had started responding to any kind of an overdose because you're scared if you come in contact with fentanyl. I mean, you know, so they were having to, you know, protect themselves. I asked one of them, could I go in and see Alex? And they said, no, we don't, you know, we don't let any anyone in. And I'm like, you know, I, my other son died of an overdose. I found him. I, you know, I've I've seen this before. Can I? Can I please go in and see him? And he said it is against our policy. And I said, you know, I have done marches and rallies in D.C. of doing things for awareness and education and telling stories. And I will never adequately be able to share what his death was like if I don't have a visual. And that may not make sense to you, but I, it's not just that I want to see my son. I want to see my son in the horrific way I know he's going to be so that one day I may be able to use that vision to help. And he went and spoke to his supervisor and came back and said, he's going to let you see him, but it's only because of 
you trying to make a difference. After the break, how North Carolina fits into the rest of the country's drug epidemic and what people in Greenville are trying to do about it. We'll be right back. Throughout my reporting, I was wondering if what was happening in my hometown was happening in a lot of other places, too. I wanted to understand exactly how Greenville fits into the larger story of the drug epidemic. So I called Susan Consagra. In 2017, we had um, over 2,400 deaths from opioid overdose. And then in 2021, we had over 3,700 deaths from overdose. Susan is a top health official for North Carolina. And, you know, just to give you a comparison, if you go back to the year 2000, we had 469 deaths from overdose. So, you know, obviously you can see big difference in where we were 20 years ago, where we are today. Susan told me that the drug epidemic doesn't discriminate. This is something Lenny has seen in his reporting over the years, too. We are seeing this across the country. It's not a specific to North Carolina or any state for that matter. We, you know, we've seen this across communities. We've seen it across, you know, racial and ethnic groups. We've seen it across age groups. You know, we're seeing it throughout. North Carolina is just like the rest of the country. The state and the United States started to see overdose deaths escalate when doctors started overprescribing opioids for pain in the early 2000s. That led people to become addicted and to the misuse of prescription drugs. And then when they became expensive or they ran out, they couldn't get more from their doctors, people went and bought them on the street. And then they often moved on to heroin and now fentanyl, which is by far the most powerful opioid. So because of all this, back in 2017, the state started a plan to tackle the opioid epidemic in North Carolina. It talks about, for example, things like prevention. How do we address trauma by supporting children and families to really prevent them from, uh, you know, families experiencing trauma that increase the risk of substance use down the road? It focuses on harm reduction. They did start to see some breakthroughs, but it didn't last. And, you know, we saw a little bit of that difference again in that 2017, 2018, 2019 time period. You know, since then, of course, we've had the pandemic and that's introduced a new collective trauma to society. And this is certainly where we've seen an increase, unfortunately, in opioid overdose deaths um, and, and just drug overdose deaths in general over the last two years. The more we talk to people, the more we saw evidence of the drug epidemic in everyday life in Greenville. Friends and families who are struggling with grief some dealing with it in isolation, others trying to do what they can to prevent more overdoses. Like a woman who runs a harm reduction center in a strip of offices in town. So these, we carry three different sizes of syringes. So these are the 516th, so they're short. And there's 10 in a bag. Diane Cardin-Glenn started this place after her son died. It's called Ekam. Ekam for Change is um, named after my son. Um, Ekam is Mike backwards, spelled backwards, and in some foreign language, it means sowing seeds. So Ekam for Change is sowing seeds for change. And it was named after him, um, after his overdose death in 2012. She's poured her heart and money into this cause. The, the law 
in North Carolina says that you cannot use federal money for um, really anything that has to do with injecting a drug. So I have a small grant that's through the health department here, and I can use that money for sandwiches and for health care items, toothpaste, toothbrush, those kinds of things. But the actual syringe items I have to pay for myself, so or I choose to pay for myself. Diane tries to prevent the spread of diseases by giving people clean needles. She also has Narcan, or naloxone, a medicine that can save someone's life if they're overdosing on opioids. But Diane is also aware that what she does can be seen as controversial, giving needles to people with substance use disorder. You know, they're just people. I mean, they're just lovely people. They, they all have stories. I mean, they're all somebody's child. They all love and want to be loved, just like everybody else. They are not bad people. What struck me throughout this reporting was just how much activism and work is being done here by families who lost someone. These are often people who've never even thought about the drug epidemic. After Mingo died, his mom, Maria, created Support Recovery Efforts, or SURE, It was a fundraising group that brought together people who have lost someone to substance use disorder. In Fran's case, she marched at the Fed Up rally in D.C. back in 2016. They were advocating for the next steps in policy and legislation to help prevent opioid addiction and more deaths. It's just a it's it's just a complete sense of loss. It's a complete sense of of, and I don't want to say failure, but but you do feel like you didn't, we didn't we didn't do something. This is Joe Hughes again, the history teacher and coach who knew so many of these kids, and and you just you just feel, just this horrible sense of waste uh, that, that these are these are such incredibly great kids with incredible potential um, and and they're not going to get to realize any of that potential that, that should be available. Joe also still wonders if he could have done something different to help these young people. It's, it's a frustrating feeling. It is, it is a uh, it's a very frustrating feeling to be you know a member of this community. And, and to know that, that somehow we're not taking care of our young people the way we should. We're not, uh, we're obviously not giving them something that they need. And uh, there's something, there's something that, that, that's lacking. But uh, boy, it is, it is, I, I want everybody to understand it's, it's a tough, tough row. Uh, it's, it's hard um, when, you're, when you're losing your babies. It's very hard. So many of these kids who died had parents and teachers and friends who cared about them, who helped them get into rehab, who supported them through treatment and recovery programs. Fentanyl is now so widespread in our society and in so many kinds of drugs that even the best efforts of the most caring and well-intentioned parents sometimes just don't matter. And 
when that comes together as a cluster, we take note. But it's going on everywhere, every day. Here's Mingo's mom, Maria, again. The people who were like our friends, you know, who knew us, they realized that it could happen to any of us. The people in Greenville, man, they, I think they ignored it for a long time because a lot of people weren't talking about it. I really think it was getting to the point that we couldn't ignore it anymore. You couldn't just say, oh, of course it happened to them. Of course it happened to them. Look at their family. Look how they live. You could blame. You could pretend that this couldn't happen to you. But by 2017, I think everybody was realizing it could happen to any of us. And it continues to happen. As we were wrapping up our reporting, another young man connected to the Greenville group died. He was a close friend of Mingo's brother, Ricky. He died from a fentanyl overdose. He was 22 years old, the same age Mingo was when he died. Jordan Marie Smith and Lenny Bernstein co-reported this story. It was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. We wanted to let you know that if you or someone you love is suffering from mental health and addiction issues, you can call the National Hotline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's episode was edited by our executive producer, Maggie Penman and our director of audio, Renita Jablonski. It was mixed by Sam Baer, with help from our engineer, Sean Carter. Our supervising senior producer is Rena Flores. Ted Muldoon is our senior producer. My co-host is Martine Powers. Lucy Perkins is our editor. Our producers are Eliza Dennis, Sharla Freeland, Alana Gordon, Ariel Plotnik, Arjun Singh, and Rennie Svernofsky. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are our assistant producers. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen.